following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There are over 500 volcanoes on Earth, and more than half of these are part of something called the Ring of Fire. There, th- this is a region that kind of encircles the Pacific Ocean. And volcanoes, well, you know, man, their, their fury is savage. I mean, as some people would say, it's unjust even. And volcanoes, those eruptions and those explosions spit out and pour out gas and molten rock and lava and all of these things, just creating devastating lava flows and mudslides and, and falling ash. In fact, we've got a couple of pictures of that we're going to show you in just a moment because uh, last month, May, or just a month and a half ago or so, marks the 35th anniversary of the deadliest volcanic event in U.S. history. Mount St. Helens on May 18, 1980, erupted, destroying, devastating 230 square miles around that volcano. And check out this first picture. So uh, say uh, you lived in this beautiful area and look at the majestic mountain. If you lived in that area and took in that scenery and were able to be exposed to that beauty in God's creation, that's, that's a fantastic place. Look at the majesty of that. And then this next picture. What if you had to deal with that as well? See, this, this, this eruption, that explosion at Mount St. Helens in 1980 destroyed 158 miles of highway. 200 homes, and 57 lives were lost. I mean, the ash from that explosion landed in 11 states. That's how big this thing was. Well, just just imagine the the, the flow of hot gas and volcanic matter uh, moved at speeds at certain points up to 630 miles an hour. I mean, mean, just, just put that into perspective, if you would, just for a moment. A Boeing 747 aircraft flies at between 400 and 750 miles an hour. That's pretty fast. A Concorde jet drags along at a mere 760 miles an hour and faster. I mean, that's called Mach 1, the speed of sound. So so you mean to tell me that the flow of hot gas and, and molten rock that results from one of those explosions has the potential at certain points to move at speeds that near the speed of sound? I mean, is that even right? I mean, that, that's, that's unimaginable. That's inescapable. Like, you can't get around that. That's unfair. That's unjust. I mean, we live in a world that is full of things that are unjust. We can't escape that. I mean, maybe, maybe for us today, it's not, it's not having to get out of the path of, of a flow of lava, praise God, but, but you and I experience that which is unjust in our world in a variety of ways and circumstances. We know what injustice looks like. We've seen the ugly face of injustice. And maybe for you, maybe, maybe for us, maybe for some of us in this room, it's been, man, you've been mistreated or you've been cheated or you've been abused even. Perhaps you've been forgotten or, or left out or, or maybe thrown out like yesterday's trash. Maybe people have failed you. Maybe even the people that are not supposed to have failed you. And it's not right. It's not just. And in the middle of those things, 
You know, perhaps we know God is there and, and, and we know God sees this. And we know God is, is present and he's there. But we ask the question, God, are, are you going to do anything about that? And like David, we, we cry out to God and, God, God, will you make that right? Will you set that right again? And we ask the painful and the insufferable question, God, why aren't you setting things right? And here at the end of Psalm 139, David cries out to God in that same way. So that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be at the end of the psalm, verses 19 through 24. So if you would go ahead and find that in your Bibles or on your devices, we'll have it on the screens for you as well. I'm going to read to you the verses 19 through 24, and then we're going to jump back in at verse 19. So go ahead and meet me there. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So throughout this psalm, we've been seeing these, these great things about God, right? David has been telling us, if you think back over the weeks, he's been writing about these great things, these attributes of God, that, that God knows everything all the time, that God is omniscient, that God is everywhere present, God is omnipresent, that God has all power and authority in his hands. He's the Almighty. God is omnipotent. And today, David takes that one step further and says that, yes, yes, God is all of those things and he is just. And in these verses, 19 through 24, we primarily get, we get two, um, two thoughts that David delivers to us at the end of the psalm. In verses 19 through 22, David delivers a confession. And in verses 23 and 24, David delivers a petition. So let's start with that first one. Let's start in verse 19, 19 and 20, and we'll go to David's uh, confession. And this is what David wrote, what we read just a moment ago. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. So right away, I mean, this, this, this sounds like an angry rant. This sounds like an emotional, angry rant by King David. That he's, he's gone off the deep end. He's flown off the handle. And he's like, God, get him. Kill them all. <laughs> now, this is certainly an emotionally charged, uh, uh, genuine prayer on David's part. But, but, but there's something broader happening here. There's something deeper. Look a little deeper in that with me. David wants God to set things right in the world. See, David, David delights in the goodness of God. He delights in the nearness of God. As we've seen in the psalm already, he delights in the power of God. But part of the point here is, is that the goodness of God and the power of God and the nearness of God necessitate the justice of God. I, I don't know if this, this has ever happened to you. Maybe, maybe at a moment of fear or, or a moment of shock or, or just surprise where, where you've cried out, God, will, will you handle that? God, can, can you just, can you make that right? 
I remember in, uh, in 2009, I was working uh, in Christian radio at the time, and the station was all the way in Core Gables. So it was like this hour trek twice a day, day after day. I mean, it was a long ride. Um, I loved the people I worked with. I, I enjoyed working at the station, the on-air interviews that I got to conduct, um, the hundreds of pastors and churches that I met. I mean, this was a time of spiritual growth for me, so I really enjoyed it. But that long trek, man, that tedious drive, day after day after day. And that was hard. And, you know, radio doesn't pay much. So I was always worried about, all right, how much gas we're using and, and, and how much wear and tear on my Honda and all of these, all of these things. Um, and I was late several days because, you know, navigating traffic over that distance is just nuts. So one midweek morning, I jumped out of the house, raced into the driveway, got to my car, and I noticed that the, the driver's side door was, was ajar, was open. Like, right, that's weird. So I jumped in a car, threw everything in a passenger seat, sat down, and I said, Something's missing. The steering wheel was gone. Like, like no, 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 no broken glass, no dangling wires, just a neatly and precisely removed steering column. So I sat there for a moment and I said, God, really? Like, like is that necessary, the steering wheel? I mean, it's a Honda. And, I, you know, I can't move my car now. And, and I'm blocking my wife's car, so she's stuck in the, in the garage also. Can't move her car. Had to, had to get a tow truck. Had to pay for that. Had to, uh, you know, had to go rent a car for a couple of days. Had to pay the deductible. Um, you know, I had to miss a day of work. So I called my boss that morning. And it's almost like he didn't believe me. And I'm like, yeah, really? It's the steering wheel that's gone. But I'll never forget what he said to me that day. He said, man, Frank, I, I hope they enjoy that steering wheel. Because may God help the people that mess with God's children. And I was like, yeah, God, get them, jerks, get them. I was all, but, but he, was, he was saying something important to me that day. He was saying something really significant. You see, we, we think, the, the world thinks, and we as well, we think we get away with things. Like, we think we do things, and, and we beat the rap, or, or we get away with it, or, or nobody sees, nobody knows. Famous last words, right? But, but God sees. And God knows. And sin is always punished. Like, it's, it's always made right. Sin is always paid for. And, and so for the, for the Christian, I mean, sin is paid for in the person of the Savior Jesus, right? Right? So when a person comes to Jesus and accepts that free gift of salvation that Jesus offers, and they, they turn their life over to Christ, they put their faith and their trust in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, fully uh, committing to him and, and being forgiven by him, Jesus takes their sin and gives them his righteousness, his goodness. I mean, that's what, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross, is it not? That as he's there hanging, as he's there dying, he's absorbing the sin of man. He's paying the penalty of sin that you and I deserve to pay, and he is paying it. And when a person comes to that and bows their knee to it, Jesus says, no, no, that one's mine. I paid for her sin. I paid for his sin. But when a person doesn't bend their knee to Christ... When, when they don't receive, when they reject that free offer of salvation that Jesus gives, they must then take their sin and their rebellion and their unbelief straight to God, who will there administer justice. God will set things right. See, David knows two things about God. 
He knows that God can and God will make things right. David, a man who's familiar with war and peace, he knows the sting of of sin and of fear and of injustice and knows God's goodness as well. David, a man who's made his mistakes, right? Not perfect, but, but genuinely loves God, wanted no part of those who didn't. I mean, he opposes those who oppose God because he wants to be near God. And and that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you want to be near God, if you want to be near a holy God, you will by necessity um, want to turn away from and push away from that which is evil and that which is vile and that which is unjust. And that's not easy, is it? I mean, we're called to, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor, love the other as we love ourselves. So that means that we're involved in the life of other people, where hard stuff happens, where stupid things take place, where injustice ensues. See, I don't know, maybe you realize this, but, but every relationship that you have, every relationship that you and I have is for the purpose of loving the other person unto Christ, pointing them to Jesus. So whether it's husband and wife or parent and child or, or friend or coworker or neighbor or, or acquaintance, whatever it might be, it is, it is for the purpose of loving them in such a way that the gospel becomes clearer and clearer and they are pointed to God. They are grown up in that. And we do that with the best that we can, with whatever opportunities that God brings while not participating in the sin, while rejecting and walking away from that which is unjust. So let's look at verse 21 and 22, where David now kind of continues that thought. This is what he writes, verse 21 and 22 there. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So this isn't really a matter of David flying off the handle then. This isn't a matter of that. This is is what's happening in David's life at that time. This is what's going on right in front of him. This is real. This is raw to David. I mean, so perhaps for you and I today, it's not the wish of a bloody, uh, the end of a a bloody enemy, but, but we live in a dark world. We live in a world, we live in a culture, we live among a people that is swayed by evil and the evil one. There's injustice everywhere. And we need to see these words by David as the the, um, the, uh, great desire, as the specific uh, desire to righteous anger towards those who oppose what is good, who oppose what is holy, to oppose who is God. So David, in response to the evil, in response to the injustice, in response to these enemies, David goes to God. David turns over his anger and gives it to God. And that, that word hatred that we see there in the text several times is David unveiling for us, David revealing his utter and complete rejection of those who reject God. So this is David not, not hating them because he feels like it, not hating them because they unfriended him on Facebook, not hating them even because they've done something to him. But these are, in fact, the very enemies of God himself. And David rejects that. You see, David, David is following God. And notice, notice the word wicked, by the way, in verse 19, and the word enemy down here. I mean, you could draw a straight line between wicked and enemy. The enemies are wicked. David is following God in such a way that the enemies of God are the enemies of David. The enemies of God himself are the enemies of David. And notice with me what the text isn't saying. 
David is not going to God saying, listen, let me take out my revenge on those enemies. No, no, David is not doing anything. David is not taking any other action other than coming to God and loving these towards God, giving them, turning them over to God for God to do something about that. And that's important for us to see because this is not a personal vendetta. This is not personal vengeance. You know, there's a classic story of King, David, King Saul and uh, versus young David in the Old Testament. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So I'm not going to have you turn there, but, but during the week, if you remember, bring this up, man. Take a look at that story if you haven't read it. It is a fantastic account of where King, King Saul now um, is chasing young David throughout all of God's desert, right? With an army of men to kill David. Now, now here's the crazy part, right? David hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, David has been a faithful and fierce uh, defender of the king. He's been a faithful servant of King Saul. But the Bible says here that King Saul takes 3,000 men to go and chase and kill David. 3,000 men, that's crazy. So in this one episode there in, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, David and his few guys, they're hiding in a cave. They're hiding in the recesses of the cave. And, and the Bible says that King Saul's got to stop and actually relieve himself. So it just so happens that he stops outside this cave and walks into the cave to, you know, take care of his business. And um, David, hiding in the recesses of the cave, sneaks up behind Saul and cuts off a little piece of his robe. And David's men are in the cave. And they're like, that's it. We got it. Man, David, kill him. Let's take care of this. Let's end this right here, right now. But shockingly, David doesn't allow himself nor his men to lay a hand on God's chosen king. And surprisingly enough, too, he, he lets Saul leave the cave. And moments after that, David runs out after him. And the Bible says David drops down on his knees in the dirt and cries out to Saul, 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 why are you listening to the wrong voices? I could have killed you. My men told me to, look, here's a piece of your robe. And, and King Saul, in a moment of sanity, recognizes his own injustice and David's righteousness packs up his toys and his soldiers and goes home. David, in the midst of even grievous injustice, shows love to his enemy. He's turning that over to God. Now, now so David's words in Psalm 139 are not in conflict with Jesus' words to love our enemies. David is opposing those who oppose God, in that case, Saul. He's opposing them, but he's not doing anything to harm them. He's not, in this passage, he's not taking any action against them other than lovingly turning them over to God for God to do something about that. The French theologian and, and reformer, John Calvin, said this about Psalm 139. David is standing in defense of God's glory. David is standing in defense of God's glory glory. You see, there comes a point where, where man, the, the sin is so grievous, the rebellion is so high, it's so bad that the most loving thing you do, the best thing you do, what brings God the most glory is for you to turn them over to God for him to do what is right. David knows where to place his anger, and he knows who can do something about it. Look with me at verses 24 23 and 24, as we, we close out uh, this psalm, David writes this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. 
So first we saw the confession. I mean, I fully and totally reject those who reject you. Now we see the petition. Now this psalm kind of ends almost the way it starts. Like in verse 1, search me, O God, and know me, right? And now in verse 23, search me, O God, and know me. That word know is is significant there because God certainly knows about David and knows fully the situation, but David now knows something about God. And David comes to God and and, and lays himself out open for God to inspect. I mean, notice the verbs and the verb phrases in there. I mean, search me, try me, lead me. Search, try, lead. Notice those that are in there. David is is coming to to, uh, God and, and he's opening himself up to God. He's saying, God, search me, and then guide me. Inspect me, and then guide me. I mean, he's fully trusting in what God is going to do. He's pouring himself on God, giving himself over to God, trusting what God is going to do. So David has taken um, his enemies, and, and the anger, and the injustice he feels, and what is he doing with that? What's his response? He's running to God. He's running to God and laying himself out open. So, so he's not whining about it. He's not finger pointing. He's not blame shifting. He's not complaining about it. He's taking his God, he's taking his anger, and he's giving it to God who can do something about it. God knows David's heart. God knows the situation. He knows all of the circumstances intimately, backwards and forwards. He knows what's going to happen as a result of the circumstances. David knows this. And now God sees David's genuine plea his genuine um, cry for God's justice to prevail, for God's justice to overcome and overwhelm the anger and the injustice and the hatred. David goes to God with that. And then because of all of what we've heard in these verses in this psalm, that God is he's, he's big and he's great and he's good and he's near and he's powerful. Now, David, with all of that says, God, because of that, now lead me in this way. Lead me in the way that's just. Lead me in the way that's right. So I know you're there, and I know you see it all, and you know it all, and you're powerful enough to do something about it, and I know that you're just. Lead me in this way. And that's verse 24. Lead me in the way everlasting. And for us today, I mean, we experience all these emotions and all these difficulties and struggles. Do we say, lead me? He said, God, lead me in your way, the just way, the right way. See, we all want justice. And we look around this world, we look around this culture and this society, and, and, and oftentimes we don't understand and we don't see, we don't know. You've been hurt or you've been rejected or you've been maligned in some way. You take that lovingly and you turn that over to God for God to do something about it. This is why Paul will write in the New Testament. He'll say that God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I mean, what God is saying is, listen, I've got that. That's on me to do. Whatever that might be. So whether it's needless violence or senseless injury, or maybe even a loved one that has gone and you feel it's unjust. We know that God is loving we know that he's good and we know that his mercy endures forever and we know that, that his grace is what, is what differentiates him as a loving God from every other impotent, false, fake religious system. But we need to know that God is also a just God, that the Lord God of heaven is just. 
He will make things right. He will cut down the injustice. He will make things right. Sometimes, you know, that's, we don't have the answers for all these things. There's no simple solutions for this. There's no neat little catchphrase that I can give you. Sometimes we just don't get the answers now. But what's more honest is the answers that we do get from God, we don't often want to hear. We want justice, all right, but we want it our way. God, make it right and do it the way I want you to do it. And what we tragically so often miss is that at long last, God has set things right. God's goodness and his justice intersect for us in the person of Jesus. God's goodness and his justice come together, collide for us in the person of Jesus, that at that moment on the cross, when Jesus is sacrificing himself for the sin of man, it's at that point where we see God's goodness and God's justice reign. I mean, this is why the apostle Peter, another apostle in the New Testament, will write this, that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I mean, did he catch that there? The, the just for the unjust. We were all the unjust. This is God sending the righteous one for all of the unrighteous ones. That's me. And that's you. And that's the beautiful gospel. That's the gospel that's for you. That is when Jesus, he walks this perfect life. He sacrifices himself voluntarily, lovingly, joyfully for the will of the Father and for the good of the people. He goes to the cross, the unthinkable, the unimaginable, and suffers a death that's more horrific than I pray we would ever know. Naked, beaten, and dying, hanging on the cross. And at that moment, the goodness of God and the justice of God are reigning for you and for me. This is God taking the wrong and giving the right. This is, this is the, the God set things right cry of David becomes the Jesus making things right by the blood of his cross. And today, right now, you can trust God to do what is right, to make it just. So whatever it is that you've brought with you today, whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever's weighing on your shoulders, doesn't matter what area, what part of life you're in, where you are, whatever that is, you can trust God to make it right. Maybe not the way you want it. Maybe not at the timing you would like it. Maybe not with the pretty bow that you want. But God will make it right because not only is he all-powerful and all-seeing and all-knowing, but he is good and he is just. God will make it right because that's who he is. And he loves us that way. Today, some of you don't know that he can make it right. You don't have that relationship with him. And listen, that can all change by lunch. That can change by the time you walk out that you would take this moment, that this divine moment, you would take this and you would turn your life over to Jesus, that you would trust in him who can make things right, that you would trust in not just the all-powerful and the all-loving and the all-graceful God, but the God who's just. And the God who's just says that you have sinned and you have separated yourself from God, but I send you my son Jesus who will pay for your sin and who will bring you near to me again. You know, next week we celebrate baptisms of people who have turned their life over to Jesus, have accepted that free offer of salvation, and now want to stand publicly and profess that. They take this step of obedience, they take this step of faith, and they publicly proclaim 
that I follow Jesus, the one who makes all things right. So I'm going to ask us to close our eyes and bow our heads as we close in a time of prayer. This could be your moment to trust Jesus for the first time in, in making things right for you. And you can pray this, Father, I long to, to, to be walking with you. I need you. This is, this, what's going on in my life is not just, it's not right, it's not good. I trust in what you have done, Jesus. I believe in your death and in your resurrection for me. Forgive me of my sins. I ask you to save me. I need you because there's no place else I can turn. You are good and you are just. I thank you for that. So I trust in Jesus for that. Thank you for saving me. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. Or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.